0: Called the fake news
1: the enemy of the people, and they are.
0: It's a serious question. I I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question,
2: I've addressed my personal feelings.
3: And I want you all to know
0: that we are fighting the fake news.
1: You're listening to Just Ask the Question Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Carum. All right, welcome back for part two of the best of series from Just Ask the Question uh just before we get started i'd like to ask everyone to take a moment and be sure to subscribe and like us on itunes or however you listen to us and please come follow and say hi to us on our new twitter jatq podcast all right so without further ado here's part two Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Caram, and today we're with Martine Kalau, and she is the uh, author of a book uh, called Illegal Among You can tell me, Martine, the it's name of it. Called
2: Illegal Among Us.
1: And the subtitle is?
2: It's Stateless Woman's Quest for Citizenship.
1: And we're here to talk about the wonderful, on the eve of the midterm elections, we're here to talk about the wonderful. Uh, issue of illegal immigration so since the title of this show is just ask the question i'll just ask the question as the president would why do you illegal aliens want to move into and ruin our country
2: (laughs) well first of all um you know Aliens, no one can, no one's an alien, no one's illegal. That's the first thing, right? And so that's the irony of the title of my book, right? It's partly ironic. And it's just, uh, you know, doing away with the euphemistic term of being undocumented. Secondly, um, as we've talked about or as we've seen in the news with the caravans, a lot of um, undocumented immigrants are here as a result of instances in which the United States was involved in, you know, policy or, or, um, you know. They're refugees. War, yeah, they're, they're refugees, they're asylees, right, I, primarily. But a lot of the reasons why a lot of, you know, people come to the United States is a result of things that the United States was involved in in their countries, and they were displaced. So that's another reason. Um, well,
1: let's talk a little bit about that in the regards to Honduras, Venezuela, right. South America. Guatemala. Uh, <laughs> This is the result of our own foreign policy. That's right.
2: Exactly. exactly. Explain that
1: a little bit. We, we touched upon it, but tell well, me a little bit about that.
2: Well, I mean, when we talk about these countries and these individuals, I mean, I don't know all the details in the history, but I all what I do know is that U.S. foreign policy was in, influenced the displacement Created. of people. People were impacted um, and they've been displaced. Um, they were affected in, in terms of economic um you know, stabilization, and that's why they are looking for relief, and so that's why they're here. And that's not just solely, um, you know, in the Central American and South American countries. I mean, we're talking about countries all over the world, including where I'm from. Um, the United States has been involved in different things, and in, in, you know, we'll get to that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but let me on what we're just saying the United States government created a situation that mm-hmm. created the refugees right? that brought them to our doorstep. And right. we have at our doorstep a Statue of Liberty and the Colossus, the, the poem, you know, says, give us your tired, or, your poor, yes, your exactly. huddled masses yearning to breathe free. But now we're saying enough's enough.
2: Well, because we're also mislabeling them, right? We're referring to them as, um, well, terrorists, as people who are fleeing into our country, um, illegal immigrants when they're actually asylees who are looking to seek refuge in the United States because that's what we're founded on, providing people relief, providing people home, providing people um, a sense of freedom. And in, so, in,
1: in, to be honest, let us and let's be honest, those that we call illegal immigrants, when my grandparents- emigrated to the United States from Lebanon, there wasn't a real lengthy process to this right. immigration. People showed up on a boat at Ellis Island. They took their name, butchered their names many times. Right, right. And uh, if they didn't have a disease, they filled out a form. And, you know, that was their path to citizenship. If you did the same thing today, showing up on the border you know, going, That's hey, right. it, you'd be turned away, That's according right. to Trump. So our rules have changed over the years for immigrants. And then the other part of it that that is of concern is, and you tell me as, as a woman of color, because I think it speaks to the issue probably better than anything else, it seems that those that we're turning away are those of color, not necessarily good white folk.
2: Sure. Um, absolutely. When you look at some of these relief programs that uh, – immigration relief programs that benefit predominantly people of color from – you know, quote unquote, what Trump said, "Shithole countries." These are the relief programs are being revoked. One of them being the TPS program, Temporary Protected Status. So these are individuals from countries that have um, experienced natural disasters, like we're talking about Haiti, we're talking about Somalia, um, natural disasters, a war, and you know, during the uh, the the Bush administration, you know, these. You know, this, these relief programs were introduced saying, hey, come on over um, and you can stay. So these individuals have been here for over 20, 15 to 20 years of their lives. You know, they've established themselves here. And now they're being told, you don't belong here. We're going to take away. We're going to revoke these programs um, and these individuals. 300,000 people fall within temporary um, temporary protected status. So that's one program. Um While we also talk about DACA being revoked, the other group within the DACA umbrella are dreamers. They're dreamers who didn't qualify for DACA. I would have been one of them. Um, I did not meet the criteria because of the age range. I didn't meet the criteria to qualify for DACA. So had the happenstance that occurred for me not occurred, I would still be undocumented today. So there are over 2.6 million individuals um, dreamers who don't qualify for DACA, who didn't qualify for qualify for DACA, who are who are part of this group, right? Hi, and welcome back to
1: Just Ask the Question. I am your host Brian Kerim. Today, I'm very pleased to uh, have a glass of bourbon with and speak with uh, Third District Congressman from Louisville, Kentucky, John Yarmuth. And uh, Congressman is also a former. Reporter, a reformed reporter, I guess. <laughs> reformed <laughs> journalist. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but let's just jump into the question. Um, it disturbs members of the press when we hear that we're called fake media and that we're enemy of the people. Um, how, does, how do you feel about that?
4: It hurts to my core. I spent more of my professional life in journalism than I have in politics. I understand how critical... <clears throat> a legitimate media is to the functioning of democracy. And I, I see on a daily basis what ignorance of reality does to politics and government. So it's, it's very disturbing. And you know I was a staffer up here in Washington in the early '70s, and I remember Spiro Agnew was vice president, and he started nattering na- nabobs, nabobs of negativism, And you know, it's been a concerted effort on the part of the right in America to discredit legitimate media. And the reason they're doing it is because if nobody has credibility, then anything has credibility. And they've they've essentially carved a space out for the the kind of media that we get on Fox News and. Breitbart and all sorts of crazy places.
1: Well, let's talk about that a little bit because as a reporter, I, I identified three things and I, and I, I want to dive into this a little bit. I maintained that it, it started in, ni- in the 1980s with, with Ronald Reagan. When he got rid of, well, first of all, he brought in Fowler, chairman of, of the um, FCC. And whereas airwaves used to be considered a sacred trust, he called them nothing more than selling toasters and they deregulated the industry and allowed people to buy each other up Then they got rid of the Fairness Doctrine, they allowed newspapers to buy each other up and today there are 1400 papers that have gone belly up just in the last few years. All of this started in the 80s with Reagan. Yes
4: or no? Well again I think it may have started before that but clearly the 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 kinda big picture situation with media the business environment, regulation or deregulation, right, and then the, the the development of the internet, which has fragmented the media even further, has all um, but dramatically that- changed, again changed the economics of right. uh, of journalism and and certainly the um, I don't want to say that the impact of journalism.
1: Well, when you go back to that though, I mean, they said the same thing about television, but we managed to regulate television and the airwaves. We could do that with the internet. I look at it this way, and I, t- I take a look at two different properties that kind of highlight the point. The first one, you and I both know very well. I worked there. I loved the guy very much, uh, Barry Bingham Senior, when he owned the Courier Journal and Louisville Times was consistently one of the top ten newspapers Mm -hmm. in the United States, had bureaus all over the country, had foreign bureaus, I think at one point in time, had 20 people covering D.C. Yeah. And now...
4: Howard Feynman among them. Yes.
1: Yes. And now, today, it looks like a shopper, and it's owned by Gannett, and it's a a pale shadow of its former
4: self. Sure, corporatization, uh, corporate ownership of... of Media has been very damaging, very destructive. Wait, so why not break it up?
1: You? Why not trespass a little and get rid of and and force media properties to sell and and break up? Well, it?
4: It's a question of whether there are any buyers. Uh, so, <laughs> so I have I have, a, I have an important stake in in journalism right now. My son is um, a publisher and editor, and he well, I shouldn't say publisher. He's an owner and editor. He does have a publisher, <laughs> but. <clears throat> I started the Alternative Free Weekly, Leo. Leo, in 1990. I sold it in 2003. He, in it, full it,
1: disclosure, I had a cousin who sold advertising for oh, Leo. All right, good, <laughs>
4: great. I uh, helped keep it alive for yeah. t- 29 years now. Um, and he it's bought a great it, paper. He bought it four and a half years ago. and It wasn't my idea, but he bought it, and he's doing great with it. So I, I'm very much concerned about the economics of journalism and the market marketability of journalism, and that's where you yeah, know you could break up Gannett and Sinclair and some of these other giants and but, should but they have to have buyers out there, and that's I'm not so sure there are
1: well i I take a look at the you know like sinclair and and all that stuff you know there used to be a thousand reporters I mean there are whole parts of the federal government that go unreported there are cities that don't have a local media there's still a demand oh yeah. And part of it goes down to a state and local government where they get rid of, of like, uh, public service ads and public notice ads and all of those things cut into its death by a thousand cuts yeah. for us in small news, in community newspapers. Right. So welcome back once again to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today it's a joy to be sitting with Senator Chris Van Hollen. And, uh, Senator, you just got out of a very interesting two days, I suspect. Uh,
5: I did, and Brian, it's good to be with you uh, on this show. Uh, this has been a wild 48 hours uh, for the Congress and for the country uh, because what you're seeing coming to, to head here is what I believe has been sort of the gross deception uh, of the Attorney General of the United William States. William Barr lied. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really not? hard to say that. Well, let me put it this way. He deliberately misled... Uh, Myself and the Congress uh, and the public, uh, on numerous occasions. Is um, it perjury? Starting with the starting with the four-page uh, memo, and then yeah. his uh, failure to disclose important information in response to my question. So, uh, before you get into the question of whether he intentionally lied, uh, I think you have to really have an opportunity to, to question him in detail on his his state of mind. And while there were some questions asked today at the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, uh, they did not afford a full opportunity to to drill down on this. And he was very slippery uh, in the responses that he did give. So look, here's here's what we know. Uh, We know that he had received a letter from uh, Bob Mueller. And in that letter, Bob Mueller said that he had concerns uh, with the Attorney General's uh, conclusions and other things that were laid out in that in that letter. And yet, when I asked him, point blank, uh, when I asked the Attorney General whether Bob Mueller supported his conclusions, uh, he said he did not know. Uh, but at that time, he'd had this letter, so he certainly knew right. that Mueller had expressed reservations. So, look— uh there there are lots of, you know, word games people can play here, but we got to get beyond the word games. I think the main thing here is where do we go next? And
1: so just asking the question, the title of the program, should we impeach him or ask him to resign? Is that where we go So next? we
5: should definitely have him resign, and I've called upon him to resign because we need an attorney general we can trust. I mean that's sort of the, that would be the, nice. the core core. A requirement of any attorney general, regardless of political party, regardless of who they work for, they have to be the people's lawyer and not the propagandist for the president of the United States. And Barr has uh, totally undermined his credibility uh, over a series of you know, statements and misstatements and misrepresentations. So he can no longer be an effective attorney general because everybody wants their chief law enforcement person or their chief administrator of justice to be impartial and fair, and he clearly is not. So he should resign. He needs to do the right thing and resign. As for whether he should be impeached, uh, here's the question. The House of Representatives right now is facing so many different um, Challenges. challenges. I mean, and they've got an administration that everywhere you turn, there's malfeasance and wrongdoing and... You have a president stonewalling uh, the Congress on all sorts of issues. So they've got to figure out how to prioritize. I mean, their biggest challenge is how do you prioritize all your ongoing investigations to focus on the key issues? It's a hot mess. It is a a tough challenge. Um, I do want to point out that even as they do their job on oversight, they have been passing a lot of legislation. And I think this is important to point out because you would think from— you know the president of the United States that all they're doing is investigations they've actually passed a whole series of important bills right you know closing <laughs> yeah. the gun show loophole a major piece of legislation on uh, reforming uh, our democratic procedures to make sure everyone's vote counts uh, equal pay for equal work where are all those bills they're over here in the United it's States like senate, senate right <laughs> it's the senate that is right now a do-nothing organization. Mitch McConnell is not moving any legislation. He changed the rules unilaterally so that he could have more votes on more judges and nominations. But that's all the Senate's doing. So the legislative accomplishments of the House Democrats are piling up here in the Senate. And the American people need to know that because these are all important initiatives that the public supports
1: welcome back to just ask the question i am brian karam and today i am very happy to have with us uh jared and i am gonna jared i'm gonna uh, let you explain why i have you here today your background you were with uh biden's administration and you're an economic advisor, and you know a little bit about the
6: economy. I like to think so, <laughs> although uh, every month I'm wondering. Uh, but, yeah, I worked for the Obama administration. I was the vice president's chief economist uh, during, by the way, the uh, the Great Recession, during the downturn. In fact, by the way, uh, uh, this Tuesday, uh, the uh, the 19th, is the 10th anniversary of the Recovery Act. So just think kind of an interesting that's,
1: that's. I can't believe it's been 10 years. I know. How about that? My God, it has been 10 years. <laughs> Fe- that was
6: so. February 2009. That act passed less than four weeks after the administration was in office. It's actually when Congress could get stuff done.
1: Yeah, when they actually worked together. So, uh, Mr. Bernstein, I'm going to just uh, ask the question, is the United States of America a socialistic country?
6: Uh, and I'm just going to answer the question, No. No, no, no. (laughs) Are there any... It is a capitalist country. It always has been. In my lifetime, I'm sure it always will be. Uh, Now, every economy, particularly every advanced economy, uh, so I'm thinking of the United States, Europe, these days, even China to some degree, exists on a continuum with pure markets on one end and pure government on the other end. There's no... Uh, economy, you can find that is at one extreme end of the continuum. Right. All the economies are are are, are at uh, it, it, on on that line somewhere, and I've been thinking about trying to think of intuitive ways to figure out where we place ourselves. And I think one way is to look at the share of GDP that we spend on social programs. In this country, it's about 20%. Uh, if you look, line up all the countries, that puts us actually, I think, in between the Czech Republic and, and, <laughs> and, and Bosnia or something like that. In other words, it's not at the... Uh, at the Scandinavian end of the continuum, where that 20 percent is more like 40, 50 or 60 percent. So by that one simple metric, uh, we actually locate fairly close to markets on that continuum.
1: But so when people say there are socialist programs mm-hmm. in the United States, social security, uh, fire departments, police departments and military Accurate?
6: Yes, accurate in in the sense that uh, there are uh, numerous institutions, programs, policies in our economy that uh, where the government plays a role that the market doesn't play. So let's take you mentioned. I think you mentioned Social Security. You right. can say the same thing about Medicare. When people age out of their working years. There's really no market mechanism that can keep income in their pockets. Now, if they saved enough during those years, they could have uh, uh, that. That they could they could live off off of their savings, at least there, theoretically. But what if? Yeah, they, theoretically. <laughs> um, but but realistically. What, realistically, <laughs> but what if they didn't? By the way, there's a, a Federal Reserve statistic that oh, okay, came to mind in this part of the discussion, which is. Um, Uh, 40% of households uh, find that they could not come up with $400 to meet an emergency without borrowing it or selling something. And uh, to further underscore that point, remember during the shutdown, these are people with middle-class jobs. And in a couple of weeks of not getting a paycheck, they were going to food pantries. So. Theoretically, people could save enough to have uh, annuities in their retirement, but a lot of people can't. I mean, it's just right. understood. So that's why we have a Social Security program, which is social insurance. Same thing with health care, um, healthcare, uh, like through Medicare.
1: So when people say, all right, I guess what I'm looking for is a definition of terms. We're not, no one is a pure anything, but these right. are socialist programs. We all gather our our goods and services together and and spread them out to people to help them out. Yeah,
6: I don't I mean,
1: is that fair to say? No, I guess
6: I I would I would say not in the following sense. They're not socialist programs in the sense that they're not programs that exist in a socialist economy. We have a largely capitalist economy. So, in this blend of, of government and markets, there are some economic functions that the markets do and other functions that, that the government, government does. does. And, and and so these are government functions. Social insurance is a government function that exists in every economy, advanced or otherwise. So the reason I guess I would object to calling these socialist programs is
1: this because it, has- makes,
6: it makes it sound like the government is socialist when it's well, not. No, no.
1: Hi and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Karam and today we're asking the question of Mark Zaid. He's a preeminent uh, attorney in the Washington DC area who has gone after, well, assisted whistleblowers and assisted in the access of freedom of information through the government and has sued several presidents, including this president so we're sitting on the back porch with mark and uh i I appreciate you being here thanks for for being here that's my pleasure and we're going to start by just asking the question you have sued president trump for uh unfair competition because of uh trump tower in in washington dc can you explain a little bit about what that's about and tell us do you expect to win (laughs)
0: Sure. So any case against a president is incredibly difficult. And I've sued every one of them since 1993, 25 years that I've been in D.C. A popular man. (laughs) Yes. Couldn't care less between Democrats or Republicans go after them all. It's all about accountability for the people. So unfair competition is a D.C. common law tort. So this is not an emoluments case, which many people have heard of, which is a constitutional claim. The facts overlap, but they're very different causes of action. We started out in D.C. Superior Court, the local court of D.C. We got removed to federal court because of President Trump, but we're suing him in his individual capacity as well as his hotel organization, the Trump Organization. Uh, they've been leasing this hotel location, which was the old post office here in D.C. Uh, for the last two, two three years uh, with like a 60 year lease. Uh, and unfair competition at its heart uh, would normally be restaurant A on one side of the street, restaurant B on the other. And if restaurant A owner starts spreading rumors that there are rats and cockroaches in restaurant B, that would be unfair competition. Competition itself is perfectly fine. It's unfair competition. So with respect to Donald Trump, the argument goes, and it is an innovative one, uh, I will acknowledge. We, we are pushing forward on the envelope. Uh, and you've
1: received standing, right? I mean, you're, you're,
0: yeah. this is in court. There is absolutely no issue with respect to that we have a proper party to sue, which is called Cork Wine Bar. It is a restaurant that's been around for a number of years that would particularly cater to lawyers, which is pretty much everybody in D.C., uh, other than reporters. <laughs> Uh, lawyers lobbyists diplomats you know politicians they would have their events at at the wine bar it's it's a top wine bar and the unfair competition becomes that when donald trump became president he has exploited his use of the presidency of the oval office not just himself but his staff his family to send business to the hotel
1: so that, that would normally go,
0: that would elsewhere. normally go elsewhere. Now it, some of it does, it doesn't all come to obviously Cork wine bar, but some would. I mean, the, the best example. And at first, when actually w- the lawyers were looking to start this case, uh, we were, a group of us talked on Twitter back and forth about that. We, we identified this as a cause of action and we were looking for a plaintiff and we finally found this one restaurant that was willing, but. The Four Seasons Hotel would have had a beautiful case because there is a clear fact pattern where uh, certain countries used to have I, – I Qatar or Saudi Arabia, I forget. It was a Middle Eastern country. It's in the lawsuit complaint if anybody wants to look at it, which if you just Google – Uh, trump hotel cork wine bar lawsuit or my name it'll come up
1: let me interrupt for just a second cork wine bar this isn't a large corporation right
0: no it's a it's it's a a small family-owned restaurant right i mean you know it's i forget how many it seats 40 50 people or whatever
1: um but it's not like pillsbury or or general foods or something taking on the president this is in essence The little guy trying to challenge someone who's taking advantage of their place in society to run them out of business.
0: Yeah, it's a David and Goliath story. And now Four Seasons Hotel, whatever company owns it, that would have been a huge giant versus giant uh, fight, of course. And, And just as an example, so this Middle Eastern country every year held a huge event at the Four Seasons until last year where it switched to the Trump Hotel and Restaurant and made it perfectly known that it was doing that and why. In fact, a number of people, uh, foreign diplomats and and lobbyists in particular have made it very clear to reporters when they've been interviewed that we are switching our business to the Trump Hotel and Restaurant because we want to be able to tell the president when we meet with him later that day, hey, Mr. President, I stayed at your hotel last night. It's a beautiful hotel. You know, they don't want to say I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. Instead, it felt like your hotel and I'm smarter than you
3: because of Holiday Inn Express. Hi, and welcome to Just Ask the Question. I am
1: Brian Karam, and today we're with someone I've, I've wanted to interview since we started this podcast. Uh, a little bit about Daryl Davis. I'll introduce you, Daryl. A uh, civil rights activist, a musician, more importantly for me. Uh, that's the fun part. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, but Spike Lee has a, a new film out about an African-American uh, FBI agent who infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan, but has to actually, have a hold, police officer. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, police officer who infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan, but has to have a white guy go on his stead um, into the KKK meetings. But um, not so with you, Daryl. You're <laughs> you're a civil rights activist who did it all yourself, and you're not even associated with the police. And you've actually talked members of the KKK out of their robes. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about. It, it, we, we've uh, spoken many times, but so I'll just ask this question. How do you get a member of a hate group to give up hate? How did you do that?
7: You know, it's exposure and conversation. What I find today is too many people sit around talking about each other or talking at each other right. or talking past each other. And I prefer to sit down and talk with each other. But when you do that, you have to go in armed—not with a weapon, but armed with knowledge. And oftentimes, I go into these meetings with a white supremacists, KKK members, and otherwise knowing at least as much, if not more, than they do about their own organizations. And I've been studying this for about, you know for about thirty some years. So even though they may not like me, they respect me for my for my knowledge.
1: Well, when you, what's the first thing you say to them when you sit down? I mean. You,
7: you, How you doing? I'm Daryl Davis. Hi, Daryl
1: Davis. Brian <laughs> Karen. Pleasure to meet you. Really? And, that's, yeah. and you
7: just start from there? We start from there. And, you know, I mean, a, a Klansman or Klanswoman is not cut out of a standard cookie cutter. They come from all walks of life, all educational backgrounds. You know, we, the public, are so used to seeing them on some of these uh, talk shows, you know, throwing chairs and all that kind of stuff. Right. But they come from third grade dropout all the way to President of the United States. President Warren G. Harding was sworn into the Klan in the Green Room of the White House. President Harry Truman had joined the Klan for a short time before he became president. He didn't like it. He got out. Supreme Court Justice uh, Hugo Black was a Klansman. He had to leave the Klan in order to sit on the Supreme Court. So, I mean, you know, these are brilliant people. But at the end of the day,
1: you're an African-American gentleman. They don't like you. They. How do you sit down and talk with someone who, by their very nature despise who you are just by breathing i mean isn't that hard
7: yeah there are degrees of hate and degrees of dislike etc uh there are those who hate you and won't even talk to you at all there are those who feel superior to you uh and there are those who feel that you know you're you i'm us i'm I'm, you know who i am and we should be separate these are separatists they don't necessarily hate you but they don't want to mix with you separate but equal well, they don't know. About, they don't the equal, go equal part, they don't Yeah, yeah right, just separate. <laughs> right. But I, I deal with separatists and supremacists. And the thing is, if they're willing to sit down and talk, because, you know, everybody wants to express their superiority. Right. So if they're willing to sit down and talk with me, I'm willing to listen. And when I get done listening and when they get done talking, then I'll give them evidence as to why I believe, you know, that they are wrong. And then they have to go and consider that evidence. And they struggle with it. Because if you know, we can argue opinions all day long, right? But you cannot argue facts. Well, so <laughs> we try these days to argue facts. <laughs> try to try to change the whole right, all the way around. Alternative right. facts, but uh, you know, so they have to go home and struggle with that, and they have to have to come up. You know, do they continue believing a lie, or do they believe the truth and possibly um,
1: well, what shame
7: themselves by by having been? Uh, in a lie for so long and give up that ideology.
1: What are some of the things that you've confronted them with, the facts that you confront them with that make them change their
7: mind? Oh, all kinds of things. Um, some believe that uh, black people have smaller brains than white people. Some people believe that uh, that blacks are prone. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of one. How, yeah. how, how ridiculous it is, okay? This uh, one Klansman was riding with me in my car, and he was an officer in the Klan, all right? And he held the uh, title of uh, exalted cyclops, which means like a, like a uh, local clavern uh, leader. And we were just talking, I'm driving, and he says to me, well, you know, we all know that all that uh, all blacks, uh, we're talking about black-on-black crime, and uh, he said that all blacks have this gene in them that make, that, uh, that makes them violent. You know, and I'd heard this before from other clan people, and I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, who's doing all the carjackings uh, drive-bys in southeast, and he was referring to southeast Washington, D.C., which at the time was predominantly black, a high-crime-ridden area. And I said, okay, black people, but that's what lives there. I said, who's doing all the crime in Bangor, Maine? White people. That's what lives there. He's not considering the demographics. He goes, oh, no, 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 that has nothing to do with it. You all have this gene, and you know you're born with it. And I said, wait a minute. I said, look, I'm as black as anybody you've ever seen. I have never done a drive-by. I have never done a carjacking. How do you explain that? He did not hesitate one second. He answered me like that. He said, your gene is latent, hasn't come out yet. How do you argue with somebody who's that far out in left field? I mean, you can't even bite into that and chew on it. No. So I was dumbfounded. I was speechless for the first time, just driving along. He's sitting over here all smug, looking at me like, see, you have nothing to say. So I thought about it for a second. And then I said, well, you know, we all know, I use his phrase, we all know that all white people have a gene within them that makes them a serial killer. He said, well, what do you, how do you figure that? And I said, well, name me three black serial killers. He couldn't do it. I. Named-
3: Hi, and welcome back to Just
1: Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today we have a good friend with us again, uh, Daryl Davis, civil rights activist, hell of a good, well, hell of a a piano player, (laughs) a musician, and a really great guy to talk to about. And today we're going to just ask the question about the recent controversy revolving around blackface. Daryl, thanks for being here again.
7: Hey, thank you for having me again, appreciate it.
1: And so let's just ask the question, the big question, are you a racist if you wear blackface?
7: Well, we have to look at the context in which the uh, blackface was being worn. You know, as, as we know, it started with the minstrels way back, Right. you know, over, over 100 years ago, over 200 years ago. And it was basically done, you know, even black people wore blackface back then, you know, when they performed but then whites began doing it in mockery and buffoonery of uh, black people. And that's where he got the, you know, the racial stigma and racist uh, stigma. But in the 1920s, there was a performer named Al Jolson who donned blackface. Now, Al Jolson was not a racist, in fact. Al Jolson put it on in tribute of black people. Uh, he loved black music. He loved um, black performers. And in fact, uh, Broadway, at the time in New York was very racist. They would not hire black musicians, would not hire black actors. Al Jolson was like the, uh, to, to put it best I'd say, was like the Elvis Presley of the 1920s. He was right. that big, All right. He put his own career on the line. He risked his own career fighting for the rights of black people to get them onto Broadway because they wouldn't hire him. He succeeded in getting U.B. Blake the great uh, legendary ragtime pianist hired on Broadway. as one of the first blacks ever to be hired on Broadway. That's what Al Jolson did. Al Jolson did not make mockery or, or a buffoonery of black people. And there were people who did, who did this, uh, who followed in Al Jolson's footsteps. But again, you know, there were, there were those who, who did it for the strict purpose of mocking blacks. So I think, you know, we have to look at the context rather than just, you know, jump on somebody when we see something let me just digress for a second, and give another analogy. The, you know, when you say, um, those people are skinheads, right? First thing people think of are white supremacists, neo Nazis, guys who shave their head, and they're very racist. Uh, The skinhead movement was started in the UK. And these were working class people uh, who rebelled against the establishment. Uh, Our parallel over here in the US, were the hippies. Right. Okay. The skinheads shaved their heads in rebellion. The hippies grew their hair long (laughs) in rebellion. All right.
1: And Uh some would say that the the hippies were imitating black culture when they. Absolutely. Yeah.
7: Absolutely. And uh, the skinheads were not racist. There were plenty of black skinheads. And even today there are black skinheads. Some right here in Washington, D.C. I know some. Okay. Now a sect of the skinheads went racist, right? And that tainted the entire movement. So like when you say skinhead now, what I just uh, described a moment ago about white supremacist neo-Nazi is the image that comes to mind, because a certain group of them, you know, uh, went renegade from the movement. Uh, and, And we see that problem occur time and time again, for example, because a certain sect of uh, of uh, Muslims bombed our our World uh, Trade Center and Pentagon. Okay, well, then we, so
1: all Muslims are so, bad.
7: Yeah, so now we have Islamophobia. Okay, it's that kind of thing. Um, the swastika, as we know, was not created by Adolf Hitler.
2: No,
1: it's a two thousand year old Sanskrit. Exactly. Thing from Sanskrit.
7: Uh, you know, you found it in Greece. You found it in India. Right. I was in India early last year. And I saw it, okay. And it's not being used as anything anti-Semitic or uh, or white supremacist, all right? And if you see if you see a swastika in the same frame of a picture with with an Indian from East India, right, right? like Mahatma Gandhi or somebody, there's no big deal. But if you saw a swastika in a picture with somebody in a Gestapo uniform or or, or little uh, mustache uh, a la Adolf Hitler, there's a problem right okay absolutely it would be a big problem so so the have, point
1: is context the
7: point is context
3: just asked the question i am brian kerman today we're uh,
1: we have an enjoyable uh, friend with us anthony scarmucci and he's author of a new book trump the blue-collar president but anthony since the title of it is just ask the question, I'm going to just ask the question, what's wrong with American
3: politics? Well, I don't even know where to start on that, but I love the fact that you reference me as enjoyable, because you know I'm going to say something unpredictable, <laughs> and undeniably vintage me, and so you're like, okay, and that's why who, I enjoy who, knows, it. who knows what could be happening at this point, right? <laughs> but but the, the, the main thing that's wrong with politics now is that we're, we're, we're divided for no reason. And so at the end of the day, these guys just want to stay in power. So they've set up a system of division where the normal people disaffect from the system and the crazies uh, stay positioned on the left and the right and enhance their power and perpetuate their power. So we have to flood the zone with more normal people, both from a – political perspective and from a voter participation perspective if we want to save our civilization. How do we do that? Right now it's going down the tubes. How do we do that? Well, I mean, one of the things you could do, which the Republicans would never allow, is mandatory voting. So you could do something like what they do in Australia. And so I I believe if you had mandatory voting, it would surprise the Republicans. There's a lot more moderate center-right business people out there and center-left social people and that would by and large help the Republican Party but they don't believe that. They think that uh, if they just look at current voter registration there's more Democrats that are registered than there are Republicans and so they would be very nervous about that but if you look at any country that has mandatory voting, the principles inside the country and the policies Uh, They start to mainstream out, and they become more commonsensical as opposed to so polarized and so left- or right-leaning, depending on the administration or who's in charge of the Congress.
1: Well, in hearing you say that, it it sounds great in theory, but in practicality, I mean, if we're going to be practical about the matter, right now, the left
3: and the right, they don't even talk to each other. Yeah, well, that's another example of what's working for them. So they just want to stay in power, Brian. Okay, these are hideous people, right? I mean, I'm just being honest with you. Maybe there's a couple Left of... Left and right? Yeah, there's a couple of do-gooders, but this is an indictment of the entire establishment. It's the reason why Trump won. I mean, the American people hate these people. Okay, And so let me just give you, like, a perverse thing to say, okay? Because you said I'm enjoyable. Let me give you a perverse thing to think about. Okay, you ready? You want to balance the budget in five seconds? Let me show you how you do it. You ready? Yeah. You got 535 of them. You give them $20 million a piece in after-tax cash that... Gets wired into their bank accounts if they can balance the budget. So each participant, 535 of them, you each get $20 million. Go balance the budget. They'll be working like the engineers on Apollo 13, you know, at the table right. to get the budget balanced. The $20 million gets wired into their accounts. Uh, it only costs the Treasury $10 billion, and you've got a balanced budget. Okay. And the point being is that they only really care about the incentives that drive their power or drive their ability to make money. It's a business model for these people as opposed to a public service. You show me the person that's really serving the, the public. It's just not. So, But if you give them $20 million and you change the entire incentives and you reduce the lobbying and you uptake the actual pay, they'll start operating like people that really care about the country. You've got to balance the budget. You can't run it the way we're running it. It's ridiculous. Well, Trump's running a heck of a deficit. No, Well, you know, I, I I, think if he were on your podcast, he'd say, I'm running the deficit because I was trying to fix the military, and they feathered, the left feathered so many things in there as it related to pork and so on and so forth that I accepted signing it. You remember that day in the Roosevelt yeah. Room where you agree with said that? all that? I, I agree with it a little. I don't agree with it a lot. I think that uh, responsible people— uh, need to right size and realign what the appropriate expectations are for the American people. This generation of people running Washington have overpromised people, and they're overspending as a result of those overpromises, and it's nonsensical. And it's and it's and it's it's long term having a drag on our civilization. Well, let's and
1: and so we're talking about post-Trump when we talk about how to bring people together. Let's talk about. The current situation.
3: Well, that's us Can I just interrupt you? You say we're talking about post Trump to bring people together. I really thought the president uh, was going to position himself less ideologically and he was going to sort of be like the Gerhard Schroeder of American politics. And just so your listeners know, he was the Chancellor of Germany from 02 to 06. Uh, He got elected by labor and he got elected by unions and he looked around and said, okay, this is a disaster. I have to reform the German labor markets. And so the people that elected him were upset with him because they thought they were going to carry he was going to carry their water. Yeah. He didn't. He was focused on all of Germany. He got blown out, but what he did was in that process he made Germany way more competitive. Only western nation running a budget surplus. Well that's